Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted today to have a special guest as part of our uh, Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth podcast series. We have with us Jeffrey Archer, as many of you will know, uh, an English novelist, a former politician, um, a novelist that whose books have sold over 320 million copies worldwide. Um, he's widely celebrated as one of England's greatest ever uh, authors. Jeffrey, it's, it's an absolute honour to have you on our platform today. I want to start with how, how have you been the last uh, year or so dealing with sort of COVID-19 lockdowns and, and all that sort of stuff? Well, the truth is I'm in a very privileged position because the job I do, telling stories, uh, lockdown is almost an advantage. So that in the 14 months of COVID, which has been a terrible 14 months, I have managed to write two books. Whereas I have a friend who owns an art gallery who hasn't had any customers coming through the door. I have a friend who owns a restaurant who's been closed for 14 months. And I realize I'm not uh, a person who should be asked how it went because although it's been boring at one level, I haven't had the problems that so many people have had. And I have such sympathy with those people. My son met a lady in the park the other day who said she lived in a high rise flat. She was single parent. She's a family. She lived in a high rise flat with three children, eight, six and four. And she was frayed. That was the word. Uh, so I've been very privileged, but I'm very aware of how many people in Britain uh, had a very hard time. On top of that, Sunil, we are very conscious in Britain uh, how bad it's been in India. We've been following the problem in India with great interest. I was glad to hear from a friend of mine in India two or three days ago, Anatar, that in, th in fact, things are improving and it is getting slightly better. But of course, it's still, because of the size of your population, a massive problem. And we in Britain are very aware of it. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I think COVID-19 has affected so many people in, in, in so many different ways. Um, how has it been actually writing? Uh, you, you said that you, you've written two books. Um, has it made a difference to your sort of creativity? Uh, has it been harder for you, easier for you? Because, um, you know, obviously the, initially the restrictions, we were allowed, we like to leave the house like once a day. Um, did that have an impact for you or was it just you were able to sort of just go through it all and it made things, no distractions, if you like? Not really, because I arise at six o'clock in the morning, 5.30, I arise about 5.30, I start work at six. I write for two hours and I then come back and have breakfast with my wife and a break for two hours. And I'm back on again at 10 o'clock for two hours. I then go for an hour's walk because of my age, I have to do 10,000 paces a day. And then I have lunch. Uh, and then I go back at two o'clock and do two until four and have another break. And then I read through what I've done between six and eight. Now, you live in a house, I have a little garden, I have a, an office where I work. I've been able to do that on the creativity front because uh, the William Warwick series has been in my mind now for four years and I'm very much living with William and uh, with Beth and uh, they are part of my family almost. 
that's not been a problem. I've just moved on and on. In fact, I know without any detail, I know the subjects of uh, book four, five, six, and possibly seven, because I've been sitting still, not doing much else. So even when I go for my hour's walk, the brain is on it as well. That's incredible to hear about your routine. How, how long have you had that routine for? Is that, is that something From that you... From the beginning, young man. I'm wow. Routine's very important to me. I believe in hard work. I don't believe you get anywhere without hard work. And I have to say, of all the nations on earth, Indians are the most conscious of that. They're one of the hardest working people I've ever come across in my life. And you can see it in England very clearly, how many young Indians are coming through in medicine, in business, in finance, because not only are they bright, but they work very hard indeed. So I have to get up very early in order to beat young men like you. <laughs> it, it is, uh, it, it's, it's funny mentioning uh, uh, Indians and stuff, because we, we've had, um, we, we, we've talked a lot about sort of uh, on, on our platform, um, the, the sort of changing, um, if you like, of, of the, the Conservative Party um, and how it's, um, wouldn't say it's necessarily become well you'd say it's more diverse but there's definitely more indians that are probably more vocal about being supportive of the, the conservative party because often you know the, the argument is they actually do share very similar values um in, in terms of the, the the political organization you could argue labor are a bit better at accessing the votes and i suppose maybe in the 70s 80s but since then i think there's definitely been a a, a real shift um I think one study that we saw recently was actually it was Indians after uh, white people were the, the second most who voted for Brexit um, in, um, in, in 2016. And I think there's lots of other signs that you, 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 we're seeing that they uh, do align with the Conservative Party, which kind of leads me well on to your time in politics. Um, we'll, we'll go back well, and Before you go on to that, young man, may I remind you that the Conservative Party was the first party to have a Jewish Prime Minister. The Conservative Party was the first party to have a woman Prime Minister. In fact, we've now had two women Prime Ministers. And I know you're going to talk about Ted Heath. So we were the first party to have a bachelor Prime Minister. And we've now got in the Cabinet uh, complete diversity when you see the amount of people who come from different backgrounds and their parents came from different countries. That's the Conservative Party. The Labour Party has always been far more conservative than the Conservative Party when it comes to that sort of diversity. I think before we move to Ted Eve, I think that's a really interesting point you raised. I talked recently at Oxford University and one of the things I you know, I was talking against the quota system, um, why I'm not a big fan of it. And I use our cabinet as a fantastic example. You know, you've got three British Indians in the cabinet who are there not by a quota system. They're there on merit. You know, they're, they're three. And, they're, and what I love about all three, they're all three very different profiles of people, different opinions. Um, in Prince Patel, Rishi Sunak and Alok Sharma, they don't necessarily prescribe to this idea of being on the left uh, or in the middle, which is what often... Um, yeah. We, we we tend to we tend to see um what was it like uh, you know going back being an mp for uh, edward heath and more importantly what was it like generally in politics during that era 
Well, you have to remember, I entered the house in 1969 at the age of 29. I, looking back on it now, I'm not in any doubt I was too young. Uh, I have to say that if I could have life again, one of the few changes I'd make is I wouldn't enter the house until I was 40. Sajid Javid came to see me uh, many years ago, long before he was in the House of Commons, and said he wanted to go in the house. And I said, don't make the mistake I made of going in too young and thinking you're ready, you're not. And he went back to Deutsche Bank and, as we know, uh, had a brilliant and successful career and went into politics not until he was over 40 and was in the cabinet within three years because that's the modern, that's the modern way. That didn't happen in my day. You waited 10, 15 years before you got in the cabinet. That's all changed. Really able people can get through to these top places very quickly. So when you get a really good, uh, say, Indian like our Chancellor of the Exchequer, everybody can see how good he is. You can't miss it. And I, frankly, I don't give a damn what color they are or what religion they are. I want my country run by the best available people. Definitely, I, I think that's the sentiment on our platform. I think our organization definitely 100% believes and I think it's just finding the best people for the right role. And if they happen to be Indian, they happen to be Indian. If they happen to be white, they happen to be white. If they happen to be women, they have to be women. It's just about who is the best person for okay. the role. Well, the um, and I that, think sometimes... The point on that is that when we elected Margaret Thatcher, we elected her because she was the best person. And she turned out that turned out to be right. The Labour Party are now saying, we've got to have a woman. That's absolutely wrong. You've got to have the best person. And if the best person is a woman, wonderful. But don't yeah. say, I've got to have this, I've got to have that. Get the best person you can lay your hands on. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think in, in, in some ways it's um, almost degrading sometimes when the quota system and stuff like this, it's like, you know, I'm fairly confident in, in myself and I, I want to be selected on merit. I don't want to be in a job interview or in a political position because you need to fill an Indian uh, on the list or a, a black I, I I'm confident in myself and um I, I don't I want see that, that. I can always. see that I mean, <laughs> you don't have to I I don't, yeah. that. thank you very much indeed Move on. <laughs> um but no um let, let, let's talk about Edward Heath so that was you know your your you know you had him as uh, you worked in his uh, government what what was that experience like and um you said you were too young. What do you mean by that? Was it just not enough life experience, or do you just think certainly, things certainly have been not different? Enough life experience. Certainly not not enough life experience. Number one, and of course, in those days there was terrible snobbery in England, and I I certainly wasn't in what I call the correct set who'd been to Eton and done all those sort of things. So I, I was at a, a minor minor disadvantage because we were just about coming out of that ridiculous attitude but and now of course that's changed completely uh, we we were much more of a meritocracy now than we were then i never really got on to ted heath's wavelength the labor prime minister harold wilson was a man i liked a lot more i, I liked harold very much and we remained friends right through to his death i, I thought he was a, a very clever politician a very clever man a very decent man and I didn't hesitate to seek his advice and wisdom whenever I got the opportunity and we both ended up him way ahead of me uh, in the House of Lords when I think we became even closer 
Uh, he had a pathetic attitude about Huddersfield football team, but otherwise he seemed to be a very sane and level person. I think moving on nicely to Margaret Thatcher, he obviously worked with her uh, for a, a considerable amount of time. We actually had Sir Malcolm Rifkind on our platform recently, um, and it was interesting hearing from him stories of his time, Margaret Thatcher, is quite well known. I think that a fairly frosty relationship, but I think one in which he um, he really respected her. What was your relationship like well, with Margaret Thatcher? And, before um, I go my relationship, let me tell you about Malcolm. The Prime Minister rang me up and said to discuss the Cabinet. And it was a sigh. She said, it's going to be your friend Malcolm Rivkin who will be Secretary of State for Scotland. And it was clear she was not pleased about it. But she would have been the first to acknowledge that Malcolm was an extremely able man. And we were very privileged to have him running Scotland. Of course, he went on to become Foreign Secretary. He was a very formidable politician and a very considerable intellect he brought to the cabinet. In my own case, I was more of a, what I call a, a working horse who was involved in elections and trying to make sure that my prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, and then later John Major, were returned to government. That was my job. And I reported back to Margaret Thatcher on what was happening in the country, what our chances were of winning that election while she got on with governing the country and making things happen. Our relationship um, was very strong and became even stronger after she resigned. She was a close friend of my wife as well for a different reason. My wife is chairman of the Science Museum. Margaret Thatcher read chemistry at Somerville College, Oxford. Many years later, my wife taught chemistry at Somerville College, Oxford. So they had that natural affinity. And all through those years, whenever they met, they would talk science, they would talk chemistry. So both of us had a particular relationship with the great lady. And I consider that to have been 11 of the happiest years of my life. And I consider it to have been a very great privilege to have served her in a minor capacity. What do you think of Margaret Thatcher's impact in back then and today? Because one of the things I think we felt on this organization, generally we're all very big Margaret Thatcher fans. Um, and sometimes I feel maybe with my generation in particular and younger, we don't necessarily appreciate the impact she had, whether it be on free market economy, capitalism, that kind of what she triggered in the 80s. And you could argue with Ronald Reagan and America as well. What impact do you think she's had in society today? And what was it like in the 80s when you had Margaret Thatcher as the prime minister? Taking those as two questions, the first one, um, never a day goes by without Margaret Thatcher being mentioned in the press. Never a day goes by with her attitude to politics, her achievements, her beliefs in, in her economic uh, strategy and schedules. Never a day goes by. So the answer to your question, Sunil, is she's had an immense influence on British politics. On your second question, what was it like working with her? We didn't know at the time quite what a giant she was. We had to lose her before we found out and look at the people who are currently governing our country. And so history has been very kind to her 
She still has in Britain many enemies. She still has a group of people, particularly from the north of England, particularly from the mining community in Wales, who feel she deserted them and left them. And of course, we know what she hoped would be her biggest triumph, the poll tax, turned out to be her biggest disaster and brought her down. For example, I remember her, uh, I was spending a weekend at Checkers with her and she explained to me, and I'll never forget it, that if you had an old lady living in a large house and her husband had died, it was not right that she paid the same amount of rates as the house next door who had a, a, a father and mother and three sons, four of them earning a living. She didn't think that was fair. And I, I remember when she explained it to me, I, I thought, wow, I went back that night in the car and, and thought, that's quite right. That's a, that's a wonderful policy. So I, I was in the same uh, mode, attitude, that I thought this would actually win us the election. In fact, what they did, the, the Labour Party, was turn it into being called the poll tax. And it, and it made, it was a very clever line, the poll tax, and, and it harmed her greatly. We then, the second idea the Prime Minister had, which I was again in favour of, she said, let's start in Scotland so that Scotland get the benefits first. So immediately we started in Scotland. The Scottish said, oh, you've picked on us. You've chosen us to be the guinea pigs. So we lost, we lost that little battle as well. And it was, I'm afraid, the beginning of the end. The truth is, though, that Margaret had served 11 years. Margaret Thatcher had served 11 years. And frankly, if you look at the American system, I think probably eight years is enough for any one person to be governing their country. It's not that they go off, but they get tired and they get out of touch. You can't, you can't fail to get out of touch because you've got such pressures on you every single day while other things are going on. Uh, and I became very aware of that towards the end of her premiership, that I was telling her things that were going on out there in the country or in my own love of the theatre or something like that. And she clearly uh, had lost touch at that level. So I think overall, though, one will look back on her period as an age when she took us out of our economic problems and showed us we could be a great nation. And I am very proud to have served her. What, what do you think one of her best achievements was during those uh, a, a time as, as leader? Well, uh, clearly uh, the nation thought her attitude with the Falklands was uh, a sign of how she felt about Britain as a world nation. And we weren't to be kicked about. So there's that aspect. The other aspect is she would uh, tell you very firmly that we were in the doldrums financially when she took over, that we were uh, not paying our way in the world and we were not held in high regard. And she would say at the end of 11 years, we had a strong financial position and respect throughout the world. Now, neither of those two extremes are wholly accurate but she'd have every right to say that she played a major part in putting us back on the financial map and indeed guiding people towards believing the importance of self-sufficiency, the importance of earning your own level. She was always very proud of a small company 
that had started with nothing and not become a giant company, they're rare, become a medium-sized company that was employing 300 people and doing a good job. Nothing gave her greater pleasure than when she traveled around the country, someone saying, well, you know, Prime Minister, I began my company uh, 20 years ago. We had 12 people. I'm now employing 300 people and we do X, Y, and Z. That, that really made her feel that's what I want in life. And of course, there were those people who uh, went on to become giants because of the freedom they had under her regime. Uh, and if you believe in a democracy, and if you believe in uh, capitalism, capitalism, if you believe in them, then you have to say she was wonderful. Uh, or the other extreme, of course, is if you believe uh, in communism, and you believe we are all born equal and should be equal under any circumstances, that's the other extreme. And she didn't believe in that. I've never believed in equality. I have always believed in equality of opportunity. Give everyone a chance to prove, wherever they come from, whatever they do, a chance to prove the thing they want to do in life. Give them a chance to make it a success. There are lazy people. There are people who work very hard indeed. And there's the in-betweens. But don't, don't, don't level society so that it's unattractive to work. People, you can't just not work. You pay your taxes, work hard. And she felt that's what she wanted to achieve. I want to touch on the uh, self-accountability um, aspect there. Do you think that's, is that a concern for you going forward in 2021? Now, my argument to this is, I, of course, in the last uh, 18 months, we've had this um, dangerous virus that has impacted uh, millions of people's lives. There is the argument to say we have given state a lot of power in the last 18 months, which isn't unlike normal sort of conservative philosophy. Do you think there's a, a bit of a concern now that as we're moving away, hopefully and we're going back to a, a normal uh, society, if you'd like, it, do you think that's a potential concern where people are now used to the sort of intervention from state and support from state? And they, we could go down a, a, almost uh, the opposite to what sort of Margaret Thatcher would want in terms of that self-reliance. Or do you think it's just, it's just a phase that we've had in this well, period of time and we'll go back? It would have been fascinating to see. and We will never know. Uh, how different it might have been if Margaret Thatcher had been Prime Minister now and not when she was. We all discuss that. It's fascinating. Of course it is. But the truth of the matter is, Sonil, we've just going through the Third World War. Every country on earth involved. So it's a real world war. And the world war has been against COVID-19. And some countries have done better than others. And everyone's been involved. So when you say and I, I can see where you're coming from, are, are the Conservative Party now not that the party of the safe money and safety and being careful? We couldn't be. We were in a world war. And in a world war, you will face tremendous financial problems, not just us, the United States, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, in our own European look, and I'm sure it's true in India as well. So it would be fascinating to know how Margaret would have handled that. But don't let's kid ourselves. This has been the Third World War. It's interesting to 
Ito, but we will come back to politics. Um, I, I want to move to your writing. Um, and let, let's go back right to the start. I, I've literally just finished uh, your, your first book that, that you uh, um, ever wrote, and uh, it was an incredible read. I'm not normally a huge uh, non, uh, sorry, a fiction fan. I love reading nonfiction, but I have obviously the Clifton Chronicles is just, um, I think that's just almost part of our tradition to read that you, you, you've got to do it. But um, how did it start for you, the, the writing aspect? I've read that it was almost out of necessity. Is that true or well, was it? It's a strange way of putting it. And may I thank you now, age whatever you are, poor little thing, uh, that I wrote <laughs> not a penny more, not a penny less. Uh, 50 years ago, you know, <laughs> you weren't even born. And what's <laughs> thrilling, what's thrilling for an author, and I mean thrilling, is that you, Sunil, are reading it now. That for an author is thrilling, because that makes me believe when I left this earth, your children will be reading the books. Well, you say necessity, an interesting word. I left the House of Commons in terrible debt, facing bankruptcy. Thank heavens never went bankrupt sat down and wrote that first book, not a penny more, not a penny less. And in hardback, it sold 3,000 copies. Well, I was in debt for 400,000 pounds. So selling 3,000 copies is not exactly going to make a very big dent in 400,000. Second book did okay. My wife wasn't sure whether I should go out and try and get a proper job. The second book was okay. Uh, it sold 8,000. But the breakthrough was Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel sold a million in the first week and has now been read, according to the Indian Times, has been read by 100 million people in India. I mean, that's a frightening figure, frightening figure. I don't know if I believe it, but it's a frightening figure because you've been one of the top countries for me. But I don't meet, a, I can't meet an Indian on the street who doesn't say he's read Cain and Abel. So that changed my whole life completely. Now, where I got lucky, Sunil, is I found something else I could do. So I fulfilled Proust's saying that we all end up doing the thing we're second best at. So I was given another chance. I was given this opportunity to tell stories. And of course, I've been shocked by how many million people have read them and the way it changed my whole life. So I'm very grateful. And I have to say to you, very fortunate and very lucky indeed because I am first and foremost a storyteller. A writer, there are a lot of writers. Storytelling is a God-given gift. You can't pop down to the local supermarket and buy a packet of storytelling. It's a gift. It's funny you mentioned Cain uh, and uh, Abel. Um, my, my dad uh, was in India when, when, when that came out and uh, he had read it. And uh, he had read it in India, um, and uh, hence why uh, I ended up reading your books later on. But yeah, it's, it's interesting you you mentioned the the, the readership you have in, in India. Going back to your, your your first book, is it true that it was inspired from your own events? Did that play a part in it? Oh yes, very much. I had lost all my money, and I I thought it was quite a clever idea that four young men. Uh, who'd lost all their money in different fields. One was a doctor, one was an art dealer, one was an academic. Uh, the four young men lost their money and they had to steal it back from Mr. Big, but they mustn't steal more than had been stolen from them. They had to steal to the exact penny what he'd stolen from them. 
uh, that was the challenge or that was the fun of making the book and it it, it I thought it was a clever idea. Uh, 14 publishers turned the book down. Oh, wow. The 15th publisher published, as I said, 3,000 copies. And uh, so I always say to young authors, don't give in. Uh, there are uh, J.K. Rowling, I think, had more turndowns than I did. Freddie Forsyth, certainly, with The Day of the Jackal, had as many turndowns as I. So don't despair. If you've written a book uh, and you really believe in it, don't despair. Uh, but as I say, the breakthrough uh, was the third book, Cain and Abel, and since then it just hasn't stopped. Is that your favorite book from, I know you, you've got new books coming out, which I'll try and uh, push, push you on, but would you say Cain and Abel was your, your favorite book? Certainly in the view of the public. Uh, absolutely no doubt in the view. I think A Prisoner of Birth, and I think, uh, also, uh, Paths of Glory, the story of Mallory. Was he the first man in 1924 to reach the top of Everest? We know they found his body 700 foot from the top. Was he on the way down or was he on the way up? The, uh, the critics have said, that's my best book. The people have said Cain and Abel, but I also love A Prisoner of Birth. Right. I mean, you've, you've got a huge uh, readership base. How do you deal with that pressure now when you're writing? Do you not think about it? Is it just, you know, you, you get in your own zone or are you thinking of what your readers um, want from your books? No, you mustn't do that. Oh, I've got to have more sex. Oh, I've got to have more violence. Oh, I've got to have more bad language. Don't do it. Do what you feel good with. Write the book you want to do and pray the public will enjoy it and want it. Don't get into fads. Ghost stories are in this month, don't do it. So I tell a simple story uh, from beginning to end and I try and make you turn the page. I try and tease you, I try and have twists and turns and I try and like you make the people in my books or hate them, one of the two. Uh, but no, under no condition do I look at what is in at the moment, fashionable, I go on, and it's now been over, been 45 years, and I'm incapable of suddenly changing because the world has changed. That actually leads on to my next question. Has your child, has your, sorry, has your um, style changed much over the last 50 years in terms oh, of um, the way you're writing or not really? Not as, a, not as a storyteller, because not a penny more, not a penny less is still the favorite of many of my fans. So clearly not as a storyteller. I'm a better craftsman. I've written 27 books. I'm better at it now. If you believe the American philosophy of the thousand hours and you begin to get a little better. Uh, I saw when I start a new book, I don't have all those things I worried about and wondered about in the first three books. I now have been through all that, done all that. My worry now is, is the story good enough? And if that stops and the sales go down, I'll stop. <clears throat> Truth is that okay. with uh, William Warwick, uh, the sales have shot up. So uh, they, 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 very kind of you to mention the Clifton Chronicles, but the William Warwick books are doing better than the Clifton Chronicles. Wow. Okay. So uh, no, I won't be stopping in the near future, Sunil.
Well, that's great to hear. I mean, it's, it's interesting. What I, I love about your books is when you talk to different uh, Jeffrey Archer fans, everyone seems to have a, a different kind of favorite. Like the, the ones you've mentioned, are, you've not mentioned the ones that I like the most. And I think that The Fourth Estate uh, was one that I particularly enjoyed. I enjoyed, to be honest, even the uh, 11th Commandment and the um, the last of the Cain and Abel one, which was, shall we tell the president? They were the ones for me, which I enjoyed the most. And you've not mentioned those well, ones. And they, I think what I always liked about your... Before you say that, before you say that, that for me is wonderful. Because so many authors, and you can name them, I can name them, have one book to their name, or maybe a second. Yeah. But the fact that I've already talked about the four or five I really care about, and you say, no, 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 there's three that I care. Mm -hmm. That's very flattering and I'm very touched because uh, that shows that the storytelling has gone right through. I mean, I think what I've always liked about your books is, and I, and I know there's so many people that are similar, there is um, a relatability. I think often in, in your books, you, you will think that that could be you or, you know, in, in, uh, um, in, in, your, in your first one, uh, not a penny more, not a penny less. You know, it, it's, it's You've all crazy because that's money. your oldest. Yeah, you've yeah. all lost money. You've all made fools of yourself, and you think, "How did he get out of it?" <laughs> Quite right. And it, exactly that. And it's it's really strange because although that's your first book, that's one of the the most recent books I've read of yours, and it's it's definitely up there with one of my with one of my favorite of of your series for sure. Um, let's talk a bit about the the William Warwick series. Um, what inspired that? What starts that that this sort of new series that you were going to go for? And are we going to be seeing, uh, I, I know there's a book coming out in October 21. Um, will we be seeing this continue? Are we, are we going to see it carry on like we saw with the Clifton Chronicles? For, well, um, the Clifton Chronicles is a series. This is not a series. Each book is individual. It's the story of uh, William Warwick, who leaves school and wants to join the Metropolitan Police. But his father, a distinguished QC, wants him to go to Oxford and read law and then join him in chambers. But he defies his father and becomes a copper on the beat in London. And that's book one. And you see him in his first role as a constable where he joins the art and antique squad. So the answer to your question, Sunil, is you are going to see him, and I, 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 this is in my mind, you're going to see him. Every book will be a story in its own right, but he will have risen in rank. So book number one, he's a constable. Book number two, he's a detective sergeant. Book number three, he'll be a detective inspector. Book number four, he'll be a detective chief inspector, which is the, the one that's coming out in October. But number one was art. Number two was drugs. Number three was police corruption. And number four is murder. So every book has its own story and he just rises up in ranks. And my aim always when I sat down and started this was to go from constable right the way through to commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. But, Sunil, I have to live to the age of 85. Now, I've no doubt in my mind he is well capable of being the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, but I have to hope I'll be allowed to live to 85. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure you will be. Um, and I'm, I'm really, yeah, I, I'm excited to be um, 
to to, to actually really go into that uh, the, the William Warwick uh, series. I, I I'm still um, I, I actually particularly enjoy your 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 uh, I think the 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 sort of one-off novels. Um, I, I think one that, again, we haven't talked about was Paths of Glory, which I absolutely love. Um, but I, I want to actually, I was going to ask this question a bit later on, but we've had someone um, ask this question and it's one that uh, our viewers did uh, email across, which was about your short stories. Um, we saw you write, I mean, they're, they're quite sporadic, it seems, the, the, the short stories that you've done uh, in time. Are we going to be seeing more short stories from you? Well, I've written 92 short stories, and I've quite recently asked the public to choose their favourite 20. And uh, my publishers brought out a beautifully illustrated book uh, called The Short, The Long and The Tall, which showed what the public thought of the top 20. And in fact, I can say to you, Sunil, that that was the one thing that I missed in COVID. That was the one thing that went badly wrong because I travel a lot because I love people and I love listening to stories. I've had no short stories for 14 months. I hadn't realized I was out at lunch today and picked up a short story at lunch today. And I hadn't realized that when I was out chatting to people, seeing people, listening to people, but I was having lunch today with a very senior executive at Sotheby's Auction House in London. And he was telling me a story about a particular painting and it's, uh, uh, whether it was real or whether it wasn't. It was a marvellous story. And I saw immediately how I could twist it and turn it and use it. But because I've been locked up for 14 months, I haven't had any short stories. Now, that may be a good thing because I've had to concentrate on oh, the William Warwicks. I've had to concentrate on getting that family into my mind, the villains, Miles Faulkner and his wife, Christina, the heroes, uh, William and his wife, uh, Beth, and this, and Ross, uh, Inspector Ross, and how he uh, can in 24 hours change everything despite what William has wanted. So that, that's, that's been the challenge in the last 14 months. I'm, I'm enjoying, I, I've been to the rest, out to the restaurant now uh, with friends uh, three times in the last four days. So I'm enjoying that intercourse very much indeed. And that's what I most missed. That and my hobby. I'm a charity auctioneer and I love doing, and I've done several for Indian charities. I love doing uh, charity auctioneering and uh, I haven't done one now for 14 months. So that's the other thing that, that, that COVID has stopped me doing. In, in terms of um, sort of short stories, and it, it kind of leads on to another question I actually had for you. What are your, like, what, what are your favorite books uh, that you've read in, in the last, let's say five to 10 years, um, in both short stories and normal books? Uh, both, if we, bit of both, if you like. Which ones have really had- well, short uh, stories, uh, I think Arcane Orion. It's as good as anyone we have in this country. I think he's a brilliant storyteller. And I think uh, Mogoldi Days is a, is a masterpiece. He should have won the Nobel Prize for Mogoldi Days. That was a masterpiece. I think H.H. Munro, uh, known as Saki, was a brilliant. If you haven't, if your people watching this haven't read H.H. Munro, he's a wonderful short storyteller. I would say O. Henry, the American, Maupassant, the Frenchman, Somerset Maugham, an Englishman. 
they but that's all it's it's people don't do it much nowadays you don't get uh, short story tellers the way we had them when i was a child and of the novels my hero is unquestionably stefan Zweig, and his novel okay. beware yeah. of pity i consider a masterpiece and he has that genius of combining great authority in writing with great storytelling he he's he's that rare you get it once in a generation and stefan Zweig is it although he only wrote two novels and tragically, because of he thought Hitler was going to win the war, tragically committed suicide. So we only have two novels to read. His nonfiction on Europe is staggering and acknowledged by every great academic as uh, essential reading. So uh, he would be my hero at, at uh, that level. Uh, and I try, I try to learn from him. I learn from him by just reading him. Right. What, what about in terms of, recent uh let's say last five ten years are, are you um still sort of you know what kind of books do you read what what are well, what's your go-to do you have a best, specific genre or? i've read in the last two or three years um a gentleman in moscow by emon Tals. Okay. i thought that was a beautifully written book and it's such a clever story such a clever idea of a man who knew lenin but was an aristocrat and Lenin couldn't kill him because he liked him too much. So he puts him in a hotel and what happens to him when he can't get out of a, He's stuck in one of the best hotels in Moscow. He can't get out and you follow his life. I thought that was brilliant. I also very much liked a tattooist, the tattooist of Auschwitz. Uh, it's the truth of the story that found, I found fascinating. How much he added or embellished, I, the man, not the lady author, uh, we don't know, and we never will know. But the, I, the idea of being the man who put the tattoos on you and his viewpoint of what happened in Auschwitz is, I think, was, I thought they were my two good reads of the year. Right. But uh, I'm a huge fan of a man called C.J. Sampson, who writes books about Henry and Elizabeth uh, through his lawyer, Shardik, was absolutely wonderful. So I think he's a great novelist and a great read too. He writes he writes beautifully. So he, he has that combination. So I'd say over the last five years, those are the people I've truly enjoyed. To get a book that makes me jump up and down is pretty rare nowadays. People ring me all the time saying, you should read this, Jeffrey, you should read that. And I do. And I often don't get beyond page 20 or 30, even when they've hit the number one on the bestsellers list. But occasionally, like a gentleman in Moscow and uh, the tattooist of Auschwitz and anything Stefan Zweig's read, uh, I'm there. It's wonderful. It's a real privilege to read them. Do you read much nonfiction at all? Is it largely fiction you read? Mainly for research. Though I've always believed you've got to talk to real human beings with research. I have on my team... Uh, Detective Chief Superintendent John Somerville and Detective Sergeant Michel Roycroft, both retired after distinguished careers in the Metropolitan Police Force. And they read my books at a late stage and tell me that just can't be done. Yeah, that's fine, but you could add that. So they're there to make sure I don't make a okay. fool of myself. <clears throat> but they also give me books to read. So if I'm doing one on drugs, 
I, I'll read nonfiction stuff about drugs. If I'm doing one on art theft, I, I will read books about people who've stolen great masters. I, 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 for the, that, I read, of course, the amazing case of the art gallery in Boston, where those people walked in and took out 20 of the finest paintings in the world, and they've never been seen since. So yes, the research will be books that are related to what William Warwick is doing. And sometimes right. a line comes up. I remember going back, if I may, I remember vividly with Paths of Glory that you mentioned, uh, in a book written by Audrey Selkin, a nonfiction book on Everest, and she was considered to be the leading authority on <clears throat> Mallory and on Everest. She wrote a sentence about that he was in love with two women, one his wife, Ruth, and the other a mountain called Chalamunga, goddess mother of the earth. And I saw the whole novel then. Here is a man in love with two women. That's the story. <clears throat> she gave it to me in one sentence. And then my weird brain set off in the direction of this man and the way he thought. Interesting. Uh, I, the, the reason I actually uh, I uh, thought that because I've read the, the tattoos in Auschwitz and I also read Man's Search for Meaning, um, which um, was uh, an incredible book of what happened in Auschwitz. One of the, the I don't know if you've read it, one of the survivors of uh, uh, Auschwitz. So that's kind of where um, I, I, I got that from. Um, again, I think we, we briefly discussed this off air. Um, somebody I think we both share a lot of mutual admiration for is Thomas Jefferson. Um, what is it about him that uh, you like so much and why you uh, admire him um, as, a, as, as one of the sort of uh, amazing people that's lived throughout history? Well, I have a passionate love of American politics. I was at Oxford at the time of uh, the death of John Kennedy and it had a great influence on my life in the sense that I really did think in my youth he would change the world. I thought if we had eight years of him as president, uh, the world would be a better place. And you think like that when you're a young student. And I have no regrets about thinking about that. But in history, in my love of uh, reading about American presidents, another uh, area in which I do read uh, nonfiction, I, I think Jefferson is my biggest hero. The Americans have produced some amazing presidents. Uh, Jefferson and Lincoln, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Kennedy. I mean, they've produced some amazing presidents. And at the beginning of their life, when there were only 13 states and they wrote the Declaration of Independence, they were, they were the most intellectual people in the United States. And when you have intellectual people in the United States, they're more intellectual than any of us. I mean, they are the great intellects in politics, so I've been in early, early history of the presidency. Uh, John Adams, Jefferson, and the son of, of Adams, John Quincy, the, the two Roosevelts. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt was writing amazing books at the same time as standing for president of the United States. They're real polymath, and you need a polymath for that job. And I think what has been disappointing recently is that it's been a long time since we've had a president that the whole world says, wow, he or she is a bit special. And when I wait, 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 say she, may I remind you politely, Sunil, 
that I wrote The Prodigal Daughter, the sequel to Cain and Abel, in which Florentina Cain becomes the first woman president of the United States. I wrote that book 30 years ago, and still the Americans haven't had a woman president of the United States. And do you really believe in your heart there isn't a woman in America more impressive than Biden or Trump or Carter or any of them? There must be out there a giant woman who won't go into politics. It's fascinating. I mean, American politics, we actually had Robert Zulik um, on our platform. He's been on our platform a couple of times and he wrote America in the World, a history of US uh, diplomacy and foreign policy. And he essentially, the, the book is just uh, short um, abstracts of, uh, in, in his opinion, his favorite um, sort of American uh, presidents, ones that he believes had the biggest impact. So he had Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Ronald Reagan, and uh, a number of other people in, 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 the, in this book, um, which is really, really fascinating. In terms of American politics right now, I know it technically doesn't cover the, the Commonwealth, um, but you could argue outside the Commonwealth, it's probably the country that's... I hadn't realised that America... I hadn't realised that America was part of the Commonwealth. That's, that's a, I'm learning every day, Samuel, and it's very kind of you. I hadn't realised that America was part of the Commonwealth. But I'll take the question. More, more for our, our listeners, just in case. Um, do you... What, what do you think of the state of US politics right now? It's something that seems very polarised and um, very, um, it, it's hard to really judge what's really going on. What, what, what do you see as a state of what's going on in America at the moment? Very sad. I think uh, Mr. Trump has done genuine damage to democracy. Not least, uh, just take one example, not acknowledging when you've lost by 7 million votes and you've lost the Electoral College by the number he lost it, that you don't acknowledge it, behave with dignity, turn up for the inauguration of the new president and bow out quietly. Uh, but he wasn't that sort of man. And we've somehow got to build back and get back that, I mean, I ask serious American analysts, politicians, senators, do you think that Trump actually believed he won the election? And most of them say, yes, Jeffrey, he's convinced himself he did. Well, I've been in politics all my life. I know when I've lost. When we lost to Harold Wilson, we only lost by four seats. And actually, we got more votes than the Labour Party. But I immediately acknowledged that Wilson was prime minister. And I would sit in the House of Commons in the opposition. And if you can't acknowledge that, you're not in a democracy. I think that leads on to, I think, the UK, the, the UK state of, uh, of politics. What, what do you think of the, the current Conservative government and, and, and how they've been in the last few years? Well, everybody's going to look back on COVID with different views and attitudes. And it is very, very simple to say, oh, well, I would have done this. And if I'd been prime minister, I would have done that. And of course, they missed that. It's so easy to say, and it's rubbish that you're thrown in with whatever problems you've got at that time, and you have to deal with them sometimes at a moment's notice, and you make mistakes. Of course you do. We had a bad start over deaths and over care homes. There's no doubt about that. 
but our vaccine program has been the equal, if not better than anyone in the world. We have led the world. I always say, it's a thing I say regularly now, if I was a German, a Frenchman, a Spaniard or an Italian, I would say, why are those bloody Brits? And why have they vaccinated more people than us? And a lot more people than us, why? So uh, there's been good and bad. Uh, but the, I think I take my wife's attitude on this. We'll know much better in a year's time when it's been properly considered because it's very easy for Mr. or Mrs. Hindsight to give their opinion. So I'm not willing to join in that particular game. I, I, I totally agree with you, Anil. We, we've had a few politicians on our platform and it's, it's a similar sort of thing. I think when it's such a unique set of circumstances, I think it, it's almost, you know, we're sadly, unfortunately, it's a trial and error and it's unfortunate it's with people's lives, but it is essentially such a, uh, something that we've not seen before. And I think it's very, it's, too simplistic to make uh, judgments of this person's done something good. I think we've all had to suffer. We suffered, India's suffering now, France suffered during a period, the state suffered. And um, I think it's only right that in, in a year's time when we have a proper, we properly analyze what we did well and wrong and and we learn from this, I suppose, in, in the future's kind of take. My question was more towards the, the general, I, I think if we go before COVID, so if we talk about the, the conservative government uh, prior COVID, and the leadership of Boris Johnson. Do you think we're in a, a good state as, as a Conservative Party? Do you think this is a strong government that has legs to continue to win elections? I think the sad thing is, yes, I think we will continue to win elections. I think the sad thing is we have no serious opposition. A mm. democracy is based on a good opposition. A democracy is based in the House of Commons, tussling, fighting and working it out. At the moment, the Labour Party in the last by-election just held. The Conservatives lost by 8,000 to a Liberal. But the Labour Party got 662 votes out of 50,000. So, I mean, they're just not even in the game. And next week we have uh, Batley by-election in England, which is in theory a safe Labour seat. If they lose that, when we're in this situation, I mean, the, I don't know where the Labour Party is going to go. And I think it's probably unfair to say they need a new leader because I think Sir Keir Starmer is a very fine man, very decent man, very caring man, and would make a, a good prime minister. But his party is torn apart after the departure of Corbyn. And we always think, well, I heard people say, well, now Corbyn is gone. The Labour Party will quickly get back into wanting to win elections. Not much sign of it at the moment. And so Boris Johnson, in a way, it falls into the category of Napoleon's comment of lucky generals. He is a lucky general. He's on the battlefield at the right time. Now, I, I think, sorry, I think the connection sort of cut off there. I, I think uh, it's, it's an interesting comment about Boris and, and Napoleon. Do, do you think, so, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, I think his impact is still there. I think there's still some the politicians who go with that sort of far left approach. Do you think that's what's damaging the party now, that, that far left wing of the Labour well, Party? If they get rid of Keir Starmer, uh, if next week's by-election is a disaster, if, 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 and they get rid of Keir Starmer, my view is they will replace him with someone in the left again. The Labour Party hate to admit that Tony Blair won three elections in a row. 
by standing on the center ground, holding the socialist values, but standing on the center ground when it came to the economy. They hate it. He's booed at the Labour Party conference when his name comes up. Wait a moment, he won three elections in a row. So I often say to my dedicated socialist friends, do you want to win the election? And one or two of them says, it's much more important to be right, Jeffrey, than win an election. Well, that's a wonderful attitude and I admire it, uh, but uh, I actually am in politics to win elections. I think it's bizarre. I think probably uh, Tony Blair gets more respect at the moment, probably from the Conservative Party uh, than he has from the from the, the Labour Party, which is Margaret, uh, Margaret, quite... Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher held him in great respect. She was uh, she she oh, well, okay. she felt he he. I mean, she she hated socialism and in every form it was. But she thought if you had to have a British Prime Minister who represented the Labour Party. Uh, I think Britain's, I think Attlee, Wilson, and uh, Tony Blair, they were not extremists of any type. No. Uh, and, and if the Labour Party is foolish enough to elect another extremist, they can shout at me as much as they like. They can tweet as much as they like. They can grumble as much as they like. They won't win the election. They have to capture someone who will bring home 41% of the vote. Because if you don't get 41% of the vote, you don't govern. So if you've got 30% who passionately believe you're right, but you never govern, you'll never make changes. And you have to get into power to make changes. You touched on it there, and it's something that uh, we regularly talk about on this platform, which is the, the influence of social media and the internet. Uh, in general, in the last, uh, you probably said the last 10 years in particular, where social media has clearly um, been growing. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question to normally when we have politicians on the platforms. I'm going to ask it about your books. Has social media and the internet had any impact on the way you write your books or um, has it made any sort of difference at all? No, partly because uh, the books, as you know, the William Warwick's are set at the moment, they've reached 1990. So, no, right. I'm, I'm not really caught up with it. And uh, even when he becomes commissioner, I think it'll only be about 2010 when he becomes commissioner right. of the Republican Police. So, uh, no, that hasn't affected me in any way at all. Uh, I haven't written, I mean, if you look at the novels, none of them are what I would call contemporary and right up to date. And I'm not sure, to be honest, Sonia, I'm not sure I'm capable of doing it because I'm, I'm a bit of an old fogey and I write these stories, which I hope people like turning the page and enjoy the story. And I'm not really into the new generation. How could I be? How could I possibly be? So you'll have to wait for younger uh, novelists to give you that. So it hasn't really affected me in any way. But if you look at you look at Agatha Christie, who is one of the most successful novelists uh, my country has ever produced. She couldn't write any of her novels today. She'd write novels, by the way, because she was a brilliant storyteller. But DNA would spoil every one of her novels. They would finish her novels. But she was clever enough. She'd be, she'd be a modern crime writer. She'd get round that. And her other trick of having everybody in a room and then 
Poirot telling you who did the murder. She couldn't do that nowadays because everybody says, I'm not going to say a word until I've spoken to my lawyer. So you move with the times. And, and I, so the answer to your question is, I can't go up there where you are discussing. It's, I, I don't really understand it, and I'd be foolish to pretend I do. Well, that, that, uh, I think that pretty much wraps things up. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on our, our platform. And, you know, hopefully sometime soon we'll actually be able to do this in person and it would be uh, fantastic for you to be back on our platform. And I'm sure there's, there's so many more questions I'd love to ask you um, and to continue this conversation. But, um, yeah, thank you for your time today. It, it, it's been very interesting and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much indeed, Sonal. And may I also thank uh, the Indian people as well, because everyone knows of my affection for the Indian people, uh, unless we're playing a cricket match at Lords, in which you're hammering us, I then get a little bit irritated. But other than that, mm -hmm. I love the people, I love the country. I, I, I've missed not being allowed to go during COVID and I look forward to coming back. I, my uh, recent trip <coughs> when uh, I attended a wonderful festival, a great, great privilege where 7,500 people turned out to see me. I, I, I burst into tears. I was so touched by it. So I have this affection and love of the Indian people. So it gives me a chance and I'll, to say to you, thank you very much for conducting this interview. And to your people, thank you very much. And I do hope, God knows I hope, that you will come through COVID as quickly as possible and other nations will have the sense to make sure you get the vaccines you need. Perfect. And yeah, thank, thank you again for your time and hopefully I'll see you at the, the cricket in a couple of months now, I think. Correct. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in um, and uh, this recording will be out soon and uh, we hope to see you at our next event. Thank you all.